All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Good to hear your voices as we worship God together. And now we're going to study his word. So I hope you got a Bible with you. Go ahead and turn in the Bible to the New Testament book of Acts. Acts 17, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So pause there for just a second. When they heard the name Jesus and then they heard the Greek word anastasis, which means resurrection, which is feminine, they thought this is Jesus and his consort. These are two new deities. That's how far we are from Jerusalem, right? So that's the environment into which Paul is bringing the good news of the gospel. Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we wanna know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. and He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we also are his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Randy Newman is the senior fellow for evangelism and apologetics at the C.S. Lewis Institute, and as a play on C.S. Lewis's classic, Mere Christianity, Randy Newman wrote a book entitled Mere Evangelism. The subtitle is 10 Insights from C.S. Lewis to Help You Share 
your faith. And Randy Newman's interest in this, and the reason he would eventually become a senior fellow at the C.S. Lewis Institute, is because he was converted to faith in Jesus Christ because somebody recommended mere Christianity to him, and he was reading two things at the same time, the New Testament and mere Christianity. And C.S. Lewis was pulling down some of the skeptical and doubts that he had and things he was struggling with, questions that he needed answers to, but also at the same time he was seeing the glory of Jesus shining out from the pages of the Gospels and the New Testament. And these two became a one-two punch and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And then he started to try to imitate the life of a deeply evangelistic person namely C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis called himself a translator. That's how he liked to think of himself. He said, my aim is, quote, to turn Christian doctrine into language that unscholarly people could understand. But here in Acts, in Acts chapter 17, we see the Apostle Paul himself as the translator. He is taking Christian truth and translating it into language that people unfamiliar with the Bible, namely Athenians, could understand. They didn't know who Moses was. They didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't know that Jesus and the resurrection are not married. There was a lot of things that they didn't know. And so Paul said, how do I take these glorious truths that change lives? The power of the gospel has power to save. And how do I bring it to people who don't have all the stock categories in place to comprehend this? And so we find here in Acts chapter 17, if you will, is a master class on evangelism. It is a master class on when and how to speak of Jesus. That's the title of the sermon this morning, when and how to speak of Jesus. And in this time, as we study Acts 17, I hope we're going to see a couple things. We're going to see Paul displays tremendous skill in gospel fluency and gospel timing, By gospel fluency, I mean the ability to make the gospel plain to the person you're trying to reach. And Paul is able to make the gospel plain to the people he's trying to reach. But there's also not just fluency, but there's timing. He's discerning how to weave the threads of gospel truth into everyday conversations with people who are right there. So what we notice in Acts is that there is, number one, a time to observe. If we want to know when and how to speak of Jesus... We need to know there's a time to observe. So we find Paul in verse 16, and he's just standing there waiting. He's waiting on two friends that he's been traveling with. He's waiting for them to come back. So verse 16, you see the words, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was, note these words, deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. Get the impression that at the beginning of verse 16, Paul wasn't planning to say anything. And then he takes something in through his eyes. And now next thing you know, he is wanting to say something. In just a moment, he's going to move from gospel perception to gospel engagement. But it all begins where he's just standing there waiting for friends and he's looking around and he's taking in the place. He's watching what makes people tick in Athens and then he's deeply distressed by what he sees. And what he sees, if you're taking notes, is this. He sees a city submerged in idols. And that is a kind of literal translation. The, the words that's used there is uh, a city under buried under idols. The city of Athens in the first century was famous for this. There were some 30,000 
gods worshiped in the city of Athens. One ancient writer said, it is easier to find a god than a man in Athens. So there were lots, uh, you found gods in people's houses, you found gods in the marketplace and in Walmart, and there were, you could buy them on the shelves, you could find them in temples, the, the, the spear, the tip of the spear of Athena at the Parthenon in the temple of Athena, you could see it where it was from 40 miles out, right? So it was a deeply enshrined city. You think about us in our lives, um, it's pretty easy to walk through the world as tourists rather than as witnesses. And Paul didn't get those two mixed up. You think about tourists. A tourist, tourists see the best parts of the town. The parts of the town that everybody who lives in the town or is trying to market for the town and draw people to the town kind of puts to the front. The visible things are there on purpose. If you, uh, if you drive through my hometown in New Orleans, if you drive through New Orleans and you're westbound on I-10, you're headed through New Orleans and you look there on your right and you can see a building and written on the back of the building are the words, the balcony. And it was, uh, I drove past that so many times in the back of my parents' station wagon, you know, it's just a kid driving down I-10 and seeing the balcony. Wonder what the balcony was. Well, I found out what the balcony was. It was it's a party venue. It's a, a wedding reception venue. And I'd never been inside of it. Um, it's not, it's probably not as fancy as you're imagining it. A uh, good deal not as fancy as you might be imagining it. But I went into the balcony for the very first time when my sister's wedding reception was held there. And I walked inside and I thought, this is like the fanciest place I've ever seen. It had this big chandelier. Uh, it, it had a, a globe that, you know, once you hit it with the lights, you know, it spun. And I was just like, okay, this is really cool. So that was the balcony as a tourist. That was a balcony kind of first time in when I was a teenager at my sister's wedding reception. And then fast forward about a year and a half and I became an employee of the balcony and I saw the place in a much different light. I knew where the dumpsters were, and I knew what ran around back there, right? There were things that I saw that I couldn't unsee about the balcony, right? I was a tourist, and then I was a witness. <laughs> Paul, here in Acts 17, he, he is standing in the shadow of the Parthenon, and he is not snapping pictures. He's distressed. He's distressed by what he sees because he's watching people worship gods that don't exist. He's watching people worship God, gods who have no power to redeem, no power to give hope. What about us? Here's a question for us to think about. Do we see human fallenness through the lens of the gospel? That's this first point. It's this this practice of gospel perception. Paul is there, he's waiting, but he's taking it in. He's waiting with a purpose. He's watching, he's people watching with purpose. He's evaluating what makes these people in this particular city tick. One of the things that was said about the, the late pastor, faithful pastor, Timothy Keller, is he understood New York City. He understood the people in New York cities, and he he immersed himself into the awareness of that culture and the ethos of the city of New York so that he could speak timeless truth to 21st century New Yorkers, to a specific 
people, what worldview? He was always asking this question when he was writing sermons and thinking and talking. What worldview was under the hood driving their values, driving their lifestyles? What questions are they asking which the gospel addresses and speaks to? What cracks are forming underneath the lives of New Yorkers that revealed opportunities for witness? He thought like a missionary in the city of New York. And so he was able to target the gospel and apply it directly to the lives and values and aspirations and longings of the people in front of him. So we move from a time to observe to a time to engage. From gospel perception to gospel engagement. It's amazing that this passage lists, right there in the span of just a few verses, verse 17 and verse 18, it lists four different places or four different people groups that Paul engaged with the message of the gospel. You see verse 17, he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews. So there's one group of people who have certain ideas, aspirations, thoughts about God. And then the second part of verse 17, he's talking to people in the marketplace. That's a different crew than the ones that go to the synagogue. And then verse 18, it says he's conversing with two different schools of philosophy, with very divergent positions on things, Epicureans and the Stoics. And Paul is able to take all of those different groups of people and take the gospel right in and import it into the lives of these different groups. But notice, here's, here's the point for us not to miss. Paul sees their gods and cultural values and moves toward them. Think about Think about your own life this last week and who God had in your circles, in your places, the environments where you found yourself. You think about the regular rhythms of your life last week that are gonna pretty much match the regular rhythms that you're gonna find in this upcoming week. Maybe, maybe you're a teacher, so who do you hang out with? Who do you see on a regular basis? You see educators and you see students. Guess where you're called to reflect Jesus? In the presence of educators and students. You live in, fill in the blank. What part of town do you live in? You're called to reflect Jesus in that part of town, in that neighborhood where you live. Another category, you have stuff to be at this week, right? Things that you enjoy doing that in many cases involve other people. You go play pickleball or you go do this or that thing around town. You do things around other people and you're called to reflect Jesus in those places. You have uh, family obligations probably this week. You got, you're going to watch your niece play volleyball or play soccer or stuff like that. You're going to show up for family type of things or or recreational types of things this week, and you're called to reflect Jesus there. In addition to all of those, which are normal rhythms for your life, you have regular places that you frequent. You got somebody who does your hair. You got, you got a coffee shop that you go in, and they know how to spell your name, and they know what you want to order. Maybe they get your name spelled right, maybe not. But they know what your order is, because you go there that often. You frequent these places. So... When you frequent all these places on a regular basis, the question is, do you frequent it as tourists or witnesses? There's a world of difference between going in as a tourist and going in as a witness. Now, what about, though, when we interact with people in any of those environments and other ones, and we discover that the people around us, all of them don't necessarily read the Bible, and those who maybe have read the Bible don't love the Bible? So now what do you do? 
Do we smash idols or start conversations? You think about what Paul did. There are idols all around him. What does he do? Does he grab a hammer? Start defacing their cultural gods? Oh, that's an option in front of him, but he doesn't choose that option. He leans into conversation. In other words, don't miss this. The fallenness of the Athenians doesn't repel him. It pulls him in. It pulls like a magnet. In other words, their fallenness, their idolatry doesn't end a conversation. It's going to start one. He's leaning into this conversation. What about us? Think about your own life. How, how do you feel about the practices and ideas that are stylish in our culture? If we let fear drive the conversation, what we're going to do is we're going to react rather than respond. And good things don't happen through reactionary approach, right? We, we can't win people we're incapable of loving. And fear has this way of driving out love. And John says, love has this way of driving out fear. And so if fear is our primary impulse, we're going to be repelled by people and their idols are going to put us off. We're going to, we're going to hold our noses and run out of the room. We're going to react in disgust for the way that people live their lives. Think about this practically. Imagine if I approach my neighbor and I say, I know my Facebook page says people like you are morons, but would you like to come over for dinner? Just think common sense. Are they going to say yes? Likely not, right? Because I have this way of projecting how I feel about you people. And it's generally a feeling of disgust, to be honest. Disgust is not missionally advantageous. <laughs> it's not a winning attitude <laughs> for us taking the gospel to people who are, who are lost or maybe confused. Even bigger issue is if we run away in disgust, I'm forgetting the gospel of grace. Think about that with me for just a second because I know that's a strong claim. The, the gap between my life and the people in the world who are most unlike me. That gap is tiny compared to the gap between me on my best day and God. And yet, what was God's first move? Run away, hold his nose in disgust, or send his son into the world to leave the glories of heaven, to come and live and teach and heal and walk into the homes of the most messed up people in town and eventually die and hang stapled to Roman lumber outside of town, bearing my shame, bearing my guilt, bearing the penalty that I should have paid for my rebellion against God, and then rising from the dead and offering me new life. That, now we're talking gospel, right? Now we're talking, so what are the impulses that that gospel creates, engenders? Put it this way, no one had a larger cultural chasm to cross to give me mercy and make me his than Christ. And when God wanted to reach us who had violated his will and opposed him, what did he do? He sent his son to die in our place. Here's, here's my personal testimony, the short version. I was an idolater and my idols were respectable idols. I wasn't 
hung up and drenched in the occult. I was happy making a little space for Jesus in a world about me. And God didn't react to my idols. He redeemed me from them. Now we're talking about what the gospel does. When it gets into our bloodstream, it creates a new kind of people. Yes, Paul is going to say some uncomfortable truths. Literally in 30 seconds, we're going to be talking about him. Paul is going to say some uncomfortable truths here in just a second, but there is no doubt about where the man's heart is. He stands here in Acts chapter 17, brimming with love for Athenians and overflowing with passion for the glory of Jesus. And those two were not in an adversarial relationship. They were wonderfully complementary in the advance of the gospel. And so we move from a time to observe to a time to engage, to a time to clarify. Gospel perception, gospel engagement, gospel clarity. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Just pause there. There's a lot of ways he could have described them, and that's about the most winsome way you can start. You seem very... Religious. <laughs> For as I passed, verse 23, I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So just stop there. This altar to an unknown God, what's, what's that about? Even though there were said to be some 30,000 gods in Athens, this particular altar, this statue was their way of acknowledging we might have missed one. We're trying to make sure we scratch all the backs of all the gods who are going to help us with the crops and help us with the kids and help us with the, all the things, right? We're trying to make sure the gods are looking generously and favorably upon our lives. But there might have been one god that got away. And so for all the figurines and statues we've got around town to honor and pay homage to the gods, this one is here as a placeholder for the one that we didn't know. And Paul says, winsomely, he says, I want to talk to you about this one you don't know. How glorious and genius is that particular move. Paul says, what you worship is unknown, I'm here to tell you about. Having established this point of contact, Paul can now clarify the truth. And he clarifies the truth, by the way, without giving credence to the 30,000 false idols in town. He's pivoting. He's building a bridge and he's taking them somewhere. And already, though, we know Paul has been called ignorant by them. He's been talking for a little while and they call him ignorant and arrogant. In another translation, they call him a babbler. And in a minute, as we keep reading, we're going to see them straight up make fun of him and ridicule him publicly. But here's the point. Paul doesn't go to Athens needing to be liked, but desiring to be faithful. Paul has strategically and winsomely and wisely built a bridge into their culture. He started a conversation by pointing at a, a statue right there next to him. But when it's time to speak, he doesn't stutter. He is bold with the truth. The message is clear. We're going to unpack it underneath these big headings. Creation. Paul says, God made everything. That's his starting place. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. 
So scripture teaches that God created everything that exists. It is a total claim and it is an exclusive claim. In other words, Paul is already right out of the gate. Paul is saying the other gods are no gods. The other gods that claim to have jurisdiction over this realm and that realm, over the realm of the dead or the realm of the harvest or the realm of the sea, they're actually not gods at all. The God I'm telling you about made it all. Stem to stern, heavens and earth, that, that, that's Paul's way of saying, heavens and earth and everything in between. There is one God who made everything and Paul goes on to say, he didn't just make everything, kind of wind up the watch. This is the idea of deism that gained steam in the 19th century here in America in particular and other places. But the idea that you, God wound up a watch and then he lets it tick of its own accord. No, Paul says, he made it and he sustains it. Paul quotes, in him we live and move and have our being. And that's, that's Paul actually pulling a quote from one of their authors, a guy named Epimenides. Paul says, he was onto something. That guy was onto something. And he quotes him and then he quotes Aratus in just a second. So two poets. Basically in that moment, Paul is making it very clear. He hasn't just observed their idols. He's read their authors. He's not distant and aloof, uh, detached from culture. He is aware. He's not going to fundamentalist sticking his head in the sand. He can quote the people singing on their radio stations. And he pulls in Epimenides and he pulls in Aratus. Not in, order, not in order to wholesale endorse them, but he says, let me borrow this idea and riff on it in a gospel direction. That's what he's doing, faithfully. But you think about this truth that begins with the truth of creation that God made everything. Maybe you're, maybe you're new to Christianity here this morning. This truth is foundational. God made the world and God made you and God sustains you. That is to say, you are alive and breathing right now. You breathe just now and you're gonna breathe again. And every time you breathe, God is letting you breathe. God is sustaining your biology. He is sustaining your chemicals, your life, your atoms. He is giving you breath. What does that mean? It means you got somebody to thank. You think about the term um, entitlement in our culture. Nobody thinks the adjective entitled is good. Nobody like, it's not a life goal, you know, to be a person who is considered to be entitled. Think about it this way. You don't live under your own power. Someone made you. Wouldn't you like to thank him? Don't you owe him your thanks since he made you and he sustains you, and he gives you everything that you're needing right now to breathe, he is supplying it actively. Paul clarifies, that is the God I'm proclaiming. He made everything. Second, creation, but independence. Independence is the idea God needs nothing. Verse 24, God does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. This is Paul saying, the gods here, your 30,000 gods in the Roman pantheon here in Athens, they need you to come feed them. You gotta come out here, you gotta pour drinks for your gods. The, the gods are so 
were known to be so lazy that they actually created humans to be their slaves because they didn't want to have to do anything, so they made humans to be their workforce. Paul is saying, none of that. Look, the, the gods here, they need humans to bolster their egos. Paul says, in absolute contrast to what you're taught here in the streets of Athens, the one true and living God who made us doesn't ask us to provide for him. He does the providing. He is, Old Testament word, Jehovah Jireh. He is the provider. He provides for us. The, the distinction could not be more vast. Religion is about you and me meeting God's needs, scratching that part of his back that he can't reach, and that's why he made us. There's a hole in his heart that only you can fill. That, that is, that's not the biblical God. Christianity, in contrast, is God providing all that we need through Jesus Christ. And Paul says, this God I'm talking about, he is not the manipulative deities that you're so familiar with here in Athens. He is not the disinterested deities you're so familiar with here. He is near. Matter of fact, if you reach out, you can find him. He, he is so near that he came. This God came to earth. Now, how do we know that Paul would talk about, was talking about God who comes to earth? Well, because in a moment, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know from Paul, Paul's not gonna jump straight into resurrection without saying, well, by the way, he died and was buried. Before that, he was crucified. Before that, he was incarnate, right? So we, we know, having read Paul in other places, where Paul goes in order to get to resurrection. Resurrection is not where you start, but he proclaims the resurrection of Christ. Again, Luke, we've said this before, Luke is just giving us thumbnail sketches. Luke is giving us the Cliff's Notes. How many of you read the Cliff's Notes in high school? Okay, some admission, teachers are looking around. You know, um, Paul's just giving us kind of thumbnail sketches. If you read what Paul says to the Athenians, it takes you 80 seconds. His sermon was longer than 80 seconds. He's got more that he's delivering here, but here's the idea. Resurrection, by raising Jesus of Nazareth, God appointed him as savior and judge. Well, now we've got a gospel that's meddling with a many God's world. Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he, God, has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising that man, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And here again, given what Paul says elsewhere about the resurrection, it's not hard for us to fill in the details that Luke leaves out in his short summary and for us to imagine and hear, as it were, Paul saying, this God came to earth. The God-man, Jesus Christ, he was fully man and he was fully God and he lived a perfect life of obedience to his father and he suffered under Pontius Pilate and he was crucified and buried and raised on the third day and God has raised this Jesus from the dead and in so doing, Paul says, he has designated him as the universal Lord who rules over all the kings and over all the kingdoms and Paul goes on to say, judgment comes to this world through that risen one. Judgment is predicated on what this world does with the claim of the resurrection of Jesus. Because when Jesus appears again in glory, every knee will bow before him. Because the same Jesus who died 
And the same Jesus who was raised is set to return. And when he returns, he's gonna set everything right. He's gonna balance all the accounts. Everything in this world that made this world feel like something was out of joint is going to be righted. This is Paul's gospel. All sin, all evil, all the stolen innocence, every time it looked as if evil rose up and justice looked the other way, Jesus is gonna come back and all the accounts are gonna be settled, balance sheets, everything, right? Jesus comes again and he's gonna make it right. And as the prophet of old said, every valley is gonna be lifted up and every mountain is gonna be brought down and every crooked place is gonna be straightened. And there is salvation in no other name except Jesus Christ. And whoever comes to this risen Lord in faith is saved. And whoever defies this risen Lord will be broken before his judgment. And now we're clear. Now we're talking gospel clarity, not just gospel engagement. The gospel is clear. We just say this is not just a historical message. This is a right now message. This is the same message for this world. This is the same message for you and me. No matter who you are in this room, I can't possibly know where on a spiritual journey you find yourself here this morning. But here's the truth. There is no good reason, not one good reason for you to face the judgment of a holy God. Not when he offers complete and full forgiveness through the death of his only son. Why? Why face judgment when you don't have to? When, when you can turn from self-rule, you can trust in the one who bled in your place and absorbed the penalty that your sins had brought before a holy God. He takes it all and he gives you his righteousness. Believe, repent. That's basically what Paul is saying back there in the first century. Turn from self-rule, turn from every idol, turn from every hope substitute. They can't save, he does, he will. Trust him. Paul doesn't leave anybody wondering what's our next move. Repentance. God commands exclusive allegiance. Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. And so we have moved from a time to observe, a time to engage, a time to clarify, to a time to call. And at this moment, we find when Paul calls for repentance, saying, this God who's raised Jesus from the dead commands everybody to repent and believe, we see that the gospel has a polarizing effect on people, hunger and hostility. The axiom that says something like this, the same sun that melts butter, hardens clay. The gospel has these, these absolutely divergent ways of people responding to it. Paul would say in another place, it's like we proclaim the same message everywhere we go, and to some it's a fragrance of life leading them to life, and to others it's like a stench of death leading them further away and into darkness. And there's like no middle ground. It has this radically polarizing effect. There's hunger, but there's also hostility. And when Paul teaches on the resurrection and its implications, verse 32 lets us watch the Stoics and the Epicureans hitting the exit doors. They're all filing out. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. That's their way of blowing him off. 
So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so what do you see? You see the gospel clarified, and you see three types of responses. Some mocked, some blew him off and said, maybe another day, talk, keep talking. And then the third said, we believe. We're joining you. We want to hear more, and we're ready to believe. I said this a few weeks ago, but sometimes when it comes to hostility and hunger, we don't know which is which. And sometimes you have to risk the hostility in order to discover that in some cases there is a hunger. And maybe somebody's heart is already being opened toward the Lord. I love that here this passage ends with a specific mention of two individuals who believed. Just factor in, we're... We're 1,300 miles from the sending church in Antioch, and there are no planes. We are multiple weeks and months of travel to get all the way out to these people. That's a lot of work, and that's a lot of money for Dionysius, Damaris, and a few others. And yet there was much rejoicing in heaven over what happened that day in Athens. Will there be much joy in heaven this morning because you believe and because you're ready to turn from self-rule and trust in Jesus Christ, the one Lord and Savior of the world. Will there be much joy in heaven a year from now when as we talk about focusing on reaching people and sharing the gospel and opening our mouths and sharing the hope that we have? Will there be much joy in heaven at the end of this year as we seek to live as faithful gospel witnesses, and we study when and how to speak of Jesus. Now that book that I mentioned about the ministry of C.S. Lewis, I was reading it and I, I finished it this week. And the last chapter seemed timely for some other things that I was reading here in Acts 17, preparing for this message. The 10th the chapter of the book concludes by referring to all these ways he's walked through, all these ways that C.S. Lewis sought to faithfully engage unbelievers with the, the gospel of Jesus. And then the author brings it in for a landing and pulls it all together in this way. There is a time for every evangelistic situation and a season for every witnessing activity under the heavens. A time to sow and a time to reap, a time to respond clearly and a time to push back gently a time to answer questions and a time to pose questions, a time to offer reasons and a time to call for response. Those first two, a time to sow and a time to reap, one of the main metaphors in the New Testament for gospel work is farming. It's sowing, it's praying, and it's harvest. As a matter of fact, Paul would say, here's what we do. Here's what we're out here doing. I planted and Apollos watered and God was the one who gave the growth. So what should we do this year? Sow much and trust God. Sow much. Cast your seed of gospel witness broadly and trust God. You think about the people in your life, fellow students, at your school, coworkers, neighbors, some of them that you might be thinking of right now and you're, the next thought in your mind is, I just don't, honestly, I don't see them believing. 
20 years ago, nobody saw the guy who's preaching in the shadow of the Parthenon believing. Think about your own life. Most of us are here this morning because somebody didn't give up. So how might we this week observe, engage, clarify, and call? And as we do, let's, let's not forget to stop and savor the gospel for ourselves. Let's not just hand it out for the benefit of others. Let's savor its truth for ourselves. That is what so much of gathered worship is about, savoring the good news of the gospel that God has found us, brought us to himself.